0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And SolarRay, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring.
1: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me in slightly different circumstances is ITK analyst and Renew Economy contributor David Leach. David, um, how are you and where are you? Giles,
2: uh, I'm well, thank you. And I trust all our listeners uh, are enjoying the discussion about electricity. I'm currently uh, stuck uh, well out of office due to uh, what's the equivalent of a war, but a bad thunderstorm having taken out power uh, from my office uh, for an indefinite time. Uh, Came through in five minutes and I now know what it would be like to live in a war zone. But anyway, let's uh, get back to our normal discussion. I think we've got a, you've done a fantastic interview this week, Giles, with uh, one of the fathers of the uh, discussion about renewable energy.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Look, um, Michael Liebreich, he's the founder of Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and um, which is um become, um, apart from ITK, of course, um the leading um market commentator about renewables um and research in in, in the world. And um Michael Liebreich, um Uh, now runs his own business, and he's become one of the leading commentators. And um, look, it's a fascinating conversation. I think we might just go straight into it, Dave, and then come back and talk about COAG and a little bit of what Mr. Liebreich had to say. But um, um, I just talked to him earlier today about his recent visit to Australia. So he is um, the founder of Bloomberg New Energy Finance, Michael Liebreich. Michael Liebreich, thanks for joining Energy
3: Insiders. Hello. It's a great pleasure to be with you.
1: You visited Australia last week for a series of presentations and talks, and um, I think you were in Sydney at the height of the bushfire alert and the smoke haze, and you, um, you published a series of tweets. You didn't sound very happy. In fact, you were quite dismayed. Explain to us why.
3: Well, that's right. So it was... Um... I was there really at the height and um, so Sydney was blanketed in this kind of brown haze, which, you know, listening to this, I'm sure, uh, you know, Sydney, uh, those who live in Sydney will recognize, but for those who weren't, it was really quite, um, I think at the time it was the worst air quality, uh, the worst particulates anywhere in the world. And that included, uh, you know, all those cities in Asia that we always hear about. So pretty shocking. And, 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 there is a climate signal that doesn't mean that climate started the fires that doesn't mean that arsonists weren't involved that doesn't mean that there aren't lots of other things going on but there is a climate signal and i was pretty shocked at the kind of complacency uh amongst the, uh, the essentially the federal leadership that seemed to be just you know ignoring uh dismissing the issues and so, yes, I, I tweeted saying I thought this was actually shameful and people are suffering and, you know, I'm not my suffering is nothing compared to people who, you know, who, who have to um, live through it and maybe who've got uh, respiratory disease or, you know, bringing up kids. So I thought it was pretty shameful. And I said so, which I usually don't when I'm visiting a country. I try and stay out of the politics.
1: Two things about that. One, it actually um, triggered a remarkable response. I think you said it was the most responded to tweet um, or Twitter thread that um, you'd ever produced.
3: That's right. It had, um, so far, and it's still going, uh, it had uh, three times as many likes as anything else that I've ever tweeted. Uh, you know, and I've got 30,000 followers, so that's not nothing.
1: Yes. yes. What, why did you just say it was a shameful um, response? Is that because they're just ignoring this particular situation about the bushfires? or is it does, or, or does it talk to something broader about Australia and the opportunities? It could be seizing, but it's not.
3: So I think I was orig- uh, originally just, um, you know, prompted to tweet uh, to sort of, you know, share my kind of emotional reaction to um, the the lack of foresight. You, you say was it because they're ignoring? No, no. It's worse than it's worse than ignoring. If you have access to the best science and you choose to ignore it, and that harms the people that you are elected to protect, and it was pretty interesting. I mean, the response. Uh, there was some, there, you know, a lot of very warm response, people saying, well, thank you for saying it. It needed to be said. There's also a lot of people quite fairly, frankly, said, you know, we don't need some whinging pom telling us how to run our country. So, like, OK, I, I kind of get that. But what was extraordinary was the sheer numbers of people saying it's got nothing at all to do with uh, climate when, you know, the science shows that it does, uh, that there is a signal. And it's just this kind of um, the problem I had, I'm. I'm not a. Uh, I'm not an environmentalist. I'm an outdoors person, but I'm not an environmentalist. But I am a scientist. I have a background in thermodynamics, and uh, and, and what worries me is actually the lags in the system. It's just how long it takes to um, to shift this super tanker, which is our energy system. And even if we shifted our energy system, how long it would then take for the CO2, you know, it has a dwell time in the atmosphere of uh, hundreds, if not thousands of years. So there's these huge lags. And so by the time everybody has understood that, yes, there's something really going on, the conditions really are different than anything we we have seen, by that time, it is actually too late to revert to the sorts of um you know planetary conditions that we had uh you know prior to the you know to to the industrial revolution prior to the changes and people will be harmed by that so it's kind of it's the willful ignorance that gets to me the willful um uh I don't know how to pronounce the word insouciance. The uh, the um, insouciance. I don't know. Like I say, I can't pronounce it. But the, the 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 willfulness of it, the callousness of it, when there are people losing their homes and there are people who are having their health harmed, and you turn against the science, and then you know tweet some stuff about how the cricketers are going to give us all a good time and it's all going to be fantastic.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that was a particularly um, jarring moment. Um, look, we've known, well, the, the scientific community, and I guess the scientific can, can, or even the big oil companies have known for decades, about the science of climate science. This has been largely predicted, the impacts that we're seeing now. Yet we just see the latest data from the World Meteorological Organization saying a continued rise in um, emissions or a rise in, in, in 2018. What confidence do you have that we actually turn this ship around? Or what 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 do we need to do to, to bring down these emissions um, consistently and quickly enough?
3: Well, so let's clarify, because I think this is very important. Um, The difference between record concentrations and record emissions or rising concentrations and rising emissions, because um, I think uh, we we are almost at the peak of emissions. So you want me to be optimistic. I'll tell you the surging increases in annual emissions uh, have pretty much reached uh, an end. Um, we actually saw flat emissions in, uh, I think, 2015, 2016. And then there was this kind of economic um, boomlet with uh, China went back to stimulating its economy, perhaps under threat from the uh, trade wars that were, that it was, you know, being brandished in its face and so on. Um, and so we've seen an increase in emissions again, 17 and 18, uh, 17, but 18, I think, um, sorry, 17 and 18. I think 19 is going to be you know, pretty much flat. We're seeing decreases in coal use in Asia, which is you know, going to be very significant. Uh, transport use goes up, but overall we will be nearly flat. Um, at the beginning of the year, I said I thought it would be flat. I don't know if I'll win that bet. But um, the problem is flat is not good enough because flat emissions means that every year we're pumping out, pumping out, pumping out, and it's accumulating in the atmosphere and So what we need to see, and this is what all the science says, is we actually need to see pretty rapid and dramatic cuts to annual emissions. So I think the figures you referred to, I think uh, were about concentrations, where we're at 400 and something odd and it keeps going up. Even if we had flat emissions annually, we'd see concentrations going up and up and up and up, and so temperatures would continue to increase. And, you know, I think... Most people in the population, they think, well, if we can cap it, if we can stop them going up, that should be OK. No, 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 no. That's not enough.
1: No, you know, and thanks for that clarification. You're quite right. So if we do need to be able to bring down those emissions quickly, do we have the technologies now to be able to do that?
3: Well, we have many of them and um, we we don't have all. So, for instance, uh, if you look at um, you know, decarbonizing, shipping, aviation Um, steel, cement, you know, these are all areas where we need a lot more research, actual lab research. Um, But we have a lot of what we need. Um, In the energy sector, uh, do we have the power storage or the technologies to manage? So we've got very cheap wind, very cheap solar, but they are variable. There'll be times when there is no wind, no solar, And the technologies that will get us to a hundred percent, we don't have uh, fully developed right now. So we have uh, high voltage DC. We could string cables around the world. We don't have all the technologies to control that and so on. Um, But, you know, I don't think that we should do nothing until we've got a hundred percent of the technology set. Um, what we've got to do, we know just using the technologies we've got, we could take an absolutely colossal bite out of emissions and um you know this is going to be a fifty year challenge there's just no way it's not going to be uh, just given how many homes, how many offices are heated using you know uh, fossil fuels uh, and so on. To, to turn this super tanker is going to take, you know, numbers and numbers of decades. So I'm very optimistic that we can take big bites out of emissions. Um, but if you ask me, do I know to the last decimal place, which technologies will do what by 2050, then uh, of course not.
0: Mm.
1: what's australia's opportunity here with its resources it's currently um either the biggest or just about the biggest exporter of lng and coal um most of its grid is still reliant on coal and um coal power but it has huge wind and solar resources what do you see as its opportunity what should it be doing
3: well so the Coal in this, you know, in any sort of world where the planetary boundaries are being respected, coal has no place unless it is um, unless you're using carbon capture and uh, storage sequestration of some sort. Um, We are already pretty much at peak coal. One of the things in response to my tweet that was quite extraordinary was how many Australians are unaware of the fact that coal demand in the world has peaked. And those countries where it is. So there's a bunch of countries where it's dropping and then there are some countries where it's growing. But those are the countries with their own coal. So you're not going to be exporting coal to a China and India and Indonesia in five or 10 years when they are switching their energy system to cleaner and the coal that they still use will be their own. And of course, hmm. then there's coking coal and so on in and steel. And, and then there's responses. You could say, well, we could use hydrogen to shift off that. So coal, really, really uh, a, a sunset. I'm just It's just a sunset industry. Gas will play a role. So Australia, good at gas, exporter of gas. There is a role, but the role of gas will be increasingly in providing flexibility, providing the backup not providing the bulk energy that's required on the electricity system. And then it'll be in things like heating and industrial processes, but there too it'll be forced out because, frankly, energy efficiency or hydrogen or some other things will come in and be uh, more cost competitive. So then you say, okay, so that's kind of coal and gas. What should Australia be looking at for its future um, sort of energy? You know, to to be an energy, and there's this, Phrase that's being used at the moment, these energy superpower. Well, you know, wind and solar can be the cheapest source of new electricity anywhere in the world. Again. Responses to my tweet, lots of Australians don't realize that the cheapest electricity uh, in the world that's ever been produced in the history of the world from any technology anywhere has actually been wind and solar in places like Morocco and Chile and and so on. (laughs) And And it's just it's just dirt cheap. And instead of saying, well, gosh, that's really interesting. We're quite good at wind. We're quite good at solar and the lucky country. You've got hydro as well which means that you've got a natural and cheap way of smoothing it all out. So if the world goes to needing energy intensive products made with clean energy, that's got Australia success written all over it. Uh, And it's just extraordinary that you've got this country, which actually, if you sort of do an inventory, you've got cheap coal, you've got cheap gas, you've got cheap solar, you've got cheap wind, you've got cheap hydro, you've got cheap money because of your savings system, your supers and and you've got expensive electricity. I mean, it takes real skill to organize that. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, that. You, you know that, I want to know because whatever it, whatever it was that you have to set out surely twenty years ago to actually produce that outcome, don't you?
1: Well, I think they did actually, if you actually go back through the uh, go back through the uh, through what happened then, particularly with the way that they got plated the grid and um, a whole bunch of other reasons and yeah. set up sort of monopolies and duopolies. But anyway, won't we'll get into that. Um You I think it was you who coined the term base cost renewables, which is just basically is is that right? Um because we, we, we keep on hearing about base load, and I think you turned it around sort of suggesting base cost renewables taking advantage of that cheap wind and solar. Um can you explain a little bit about what 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 that, what
3: that is? sure so the way that grids for 150 years uh, used to be designed was baseload and peak so you've got variable demand which in the historic times you couldn't affect at all that was just demand it was a given uh, people all came in switched the telly on switch the lights on you know the water heaters came on when they wanted and so on and so what you would do is you would say right the cheapest way to generate electricity is with a plant that just runs as close to 24-7 as possible, um, but then it can't manage the peaks. You make To make that really cheap, you don't have a plant that can follow the load. You have a plant that just runs flat out all the time or at the, its design capacity all the time. That's baseload. And then you have peakers, which manage the peak. Uh, they're more expensive to run, but they only run a few hours a day, and that's how you run it. What we've got now is that wind and solar are cheaper than baseload, by a lot, by a lot. So when you've got um, uh, wind and solar that can come in unsubsidized at 20 US dollars per megawatt hour, and even using gas or coal is gonna cost you 40, 60, 80, uh, and if it's nuclear, I mean, we're talking 100 plus, then what you want to do is use as much of that cheap resource as possible wherever you can use it, and you've got lots of space in Australia, you use the cheap wind and the cheap solar. And then you've got to say, well, that's great. That's a bit like going to the, you know, discount supermarket to buying all your toilet paper and all of your staples. But that's not, a, that's, that's not going to kind of fill all of your household's needs. Um, so then you have to go to the you know to the to the more expensive you know to the cheese shop to get the cheese to the, the you know to add in and kind of complete your your household purchases you go to specialty stores to fill things in and in electricity terms that says right we're going to get bulk cheap wind and solar and then we need to buy flexibility from specialists who can keep the lights on during the night or if the uh, the wind drops and those might be big interconnectors with other states you know going long distance so you get the law of large numbers they could be batteries but they can also be and this is crucially important they could be demand response so uh cycling the demand up and down refrigerators uh just get, getting to start with the industrial uh users to actually reduce demand when the wind might be lower or it might you know and, and particularly obviously if it's if it's when there's no solar power and you've got some incredible resources there i mean you actually have aluminium smelters and you know that's a huge source of demand that can actually be cycled up and down which is phenomenal you know if you could run those when there's you know midday when it's windy and then cycle them down uh you know when the sun goes in or when the wind drops and that can be done the technologies you know exist for that then you start to put it all together and what you're doing you're running these base cost renewables very cheap wind very cheap solar and then peak then you're having these flexibility technologies and hydro is a great one as well you've got hydro use that and so you you blend and make the average cost actually should be lower than if you're doing the old school baseload and peak using fossil fuels but of course now you're zero carbon It's
1: fantastic. Where do you see this happening sort of first in the world? I mean, Australia, you say, has all these resources at hand. And you could probably point to some places like South Australia, which is the highest penetration of variable wind and solar in the world. Um, You know, averages well over 50% in the last year. Um, In the last couple of months, it's actually been finally delivering that cheap electricity that you talk about. What's actually, given the resources that we have in Australia and the, and, 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 listening to you of the obvious um possibilities why do you think we don't seize those opportunities what is it that's holding this transformation back in australia and i guess it's probably the same forces which are holding it back in the rest of the world
3: so there's nowhere in the world that's really nailing it. There's nowhere that you could say, you know, here we've got a heavily industrialized nation that has got it absolutely right, the right blend of, uh, of, of uh, renewables, the right blend of storage, the right uh, shift in its in- industry and making demand flexible and so on. There's nobody. I mean, and, and you know, quite clearly, Germany, they have the energy vendor, the energy transition. They've made horrible mistakes along the way with that. Um, funnily enough, the place that's probably got it closest to right is the UK. Um, and I think some of that was frankly quite accidental, um, where you know we used a, a carbon price floor. So the EU ETS, the European Carbon Pricing Mechanism, kind of failed to produce a signal. Um, it got glutted with carbon, the prices dropped. But in the UK, um, the Chancellor at the time, George Osborne, put a price floor on carbon. And that You know, forced loads of uh, coal fired power stations off the system at the same time as we were bringing a lot of very cheap uh, wind, some solar, some offshore wind, you know, big advance in offshore wind uh, and some energy efficiency. So, you know, we found ourselves sort of in, you know, we're kind of leading after, let's call it. Let's call it 15 laps of the 72-lap Grand Prix, and the UK is in the lead. And we're looking around, going, "Bloody hell, what happened to everybody else?" (laughs) Uh, So that's where we are. And I think, but when I look at Australia, I think, you know, you really ought to be able to come through by about lap 2025 and be out of sight by the end of the race because you've got this cheap resource, you've got everything, and you know, I want to mention it's not just wind and solar and and but you know. You are already leaders in rooftop solar, literally the world leaders on a grand scale of distributed solar. And then you should be saying, right? How can we use you know our, our small amounts of our you know our brains and a little bit of of, of pixie dust? You know, money. how do you manage that resource to really take the loads off grids or to use it flexibly? You know, how do we start to get? Um, those solar rooftops linked with batteries, linked with electric vehicles, linked with... Um, I love the use of uh, 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 thermal storage. So make your hot water a week in advance and just keep it in an insulated tank and then take the pressure off the grid or feed into the grid when the grid is short of power, you know, a week later. So you how do you use all that resource flexibly? I think Australia can be a world champion at that. Um, industry is going to go to, if you want low cost green hydrogen, you would go to a place that's got lots of wind, lots of solar, um, that it's got uh, st- big, large scale storage, like um, hydro and pumped hydro, and also interconnections. You know, you have over invested in your interconnections and, and that's a that's a great, you know, that's a great asset or it could be a great asset um, because if you can run industrial process, electrolysis at 70, 80% capacity factor with $20 electricity. Um, That's huge. That's huge. It's a huge advantage. (laughs) So you've got lots of things. And And the final one, I just want to mention also, this is going to require a lot of minerals and mining and metals. And it is extraordinary the response to my tweet was all these people saying well, oh, it's never going to work because you know you need so many minerals and you need so much you know you're not going to never going to get rid of mining it's like no we're not you know who's really good at mining hmm let's see is there a country that's got very cheap renewable energy and is also really good at mining and it's got really low cost of capital hmm let me think hmm. nope sorry can't think of one
1: Wake up, Australia, I think. Wake up. Wake up. (laughs) Do see the opportunities. (laughs) You you mentioned mentioned, um, hydrogen, and um, last week at the COAG uh, Energy Minister's meeting, the National Hydrogen Strategy was approved. There's some concern about the split between um, green hydrogen and brown hydrogen. Um, I think um, in our discussion before this, um recording we we did talk about the sort of the, the varying costs and i th- i think it's a given that at the moment um green hydrogen through electrolysis is more expensive than say brown h- hydrogen through steam reforming methods but who out there in the world would be interested in taking hydrogen if it comes from brown coal and is you know got high emissions and if it was to be low emissions and you had carbon capture and storage then surely that would actually equal out the costs if it could be done
3: okay so just a few definitions, maybe everybody knows these things, but green hydrogen is electrolysis using renewable electricity. Um, brown is using natural gas, steam methane reforming. And then there's this thing called blue hydrogen, which would be carbon capture on top of um, steam methane reforming. So again, it's zero carbon, but you've done it from natural gas. At the moment, at the moment, um, the way the costs work is green, so renewable electrolysis, is the most expensive, the next one is blue. So you can be zero carbon, it's a bit cheaper, but you're using natural gas and having to capture the CO2. Then you've got uh, brown hydrogen from natural gas, right? The problem you've got is it doesn't stop there. You've got natural gas. So a lot of industrial use was like, well, wh- why would you use hydrogen from natural gas in, um, in, in any process that just requires heat, industrial heat? well, why wouldn't you just use the gas? Because Mm. it's gonna be cheaper than using the hydrogen in the first place. So that's where we are today. Now you roll the clock forwards. um, What what you'll get is the green hydrogen will overtake the blue hydrogen, and then by about 2040 will overtake the the brown. So now now you've got two things. You've got natural gas and cheap green hydrogen unfortunately, the natural gas is still cheaper. So the green hydrogen will displace gas use in things like ammonia production, just naturally, you'll have to wait till 2040. Um, It may happen by 2030 if we all kind of, you know, sharpen our pencils and and, uh, are very creative about financing and build vast scales straight off the bat and so on. So you'll go into ammonia, you'll go into hydrogen use in refining, which is another big use, but you won't ever get hydrogen into things like steel and cement and heating over and above gas without a carbon price so the short answer to your question is who will buy hydrogen um you know to displace natural gas the answer is people with carbon prices
1: Hmm. interesting michael we probably have to wrap it up here but i just thought my final question would be um are you after saying all of this, are you an optimist or a pessimist in our future and cutting emissions?
3: So I think uh, the best way to answer that is uh, Craig Venter, the chap who um, sequenced first to sequence the genome, or the first to claim that he was the first to sequence the genome, depending on your point of view, he said that, um, I don't know if one should be optimistic or pessimistic. I do know that the optimists will get stuff done. And so quite certainly um i live by that i'm maybe i'm an optimistic chap and um what i do see i do see most of the um you know most of the shocks most of the surprises are actually potentially to the good you know people are so pessimistic that actually you know if i say well emissions could if they're not flat in 2019 if they're not you know, down a little bit on twenty eighteen. You know, if we're not at peak emissions, we will be soon. A lot of people are like, "No, no, you can't say that. It's so terrible." And 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 we're really at peak emissions. I think that. Um. It, it. And by the way, it doesn't matter if we translate that. Let's translate that into uh, temperatures. Um, whatever temperature we're already at, zero point eight centigrade higher than pre-industrial. There is already. Uh, climate damage, right? There's already a signal that's perceived in, whether it's your um, your bushfires or, or in uh, accelerated melting of ice caps and damage to corals, we can see there's already a signal. And however bad it's going to get, it's gonna be less bad if we optimistically take action, both on mitigation and on adaptation, protecting ourselves. So being optimistic and being leaning in and doing stuff is very important. But to answer your question, I think there is uh, we're at 0.8 degrees centigrade. Um, If you want one and a half degrees, much as I would love to say, you know, yeah, we can do this. Let's all pull together. Let's be optimistic. And so I just think the inertia in the system is too high. I'm going to be honest. I don't think we can do that. Um, The current trend we're on is towards about three degrees, 2.7 and I think we can do much better than that. I think we can bend the arc downwards, we can bend it really far with humans are smart, engineers are smart. The money we haven't talked about it, I haven't had time to talk about um the the amount of money out there that is now looking to be compatible with the planetary boundaries with the two degrees and so on it's It's enormous. We can do a huge amount. we can bend the arc downwards. I would guess we can get to maybe two degrees uh but one and a half degrees I think. If we try to bend that arc too quickly, we will then threaten the underpinnings of the economy, which is delivering also healthcare, pulling people out of poverty, um, you know, helping people to uh, to to come out of you know, there's 900 million people still don't have electricity at all, and so you know if we try and go too fast, we're going to jeopardise their whole livelihoods and their life and their health. So you know, we two degrees, I don't know, you tell me, is two degrees optimistic or is two degrees pessimistic?
1: Yes, well, it just makes me wonder about how much smoke will be in Sydney next time you visit in the the summer at two degrees with more than double the temperature rise and um, perhaps everything might have burnt. But um, look, let's hope that um, we do actually take the optimistic point of view and do things and um, and lean in, which, um, by the way, is one of the favourite phrases of our current Prime Minister. So um, perhaps he can lean in and... um, start um, picking up some of these technologies. Michael Rybrick, I do thank you for joining Energy Insiders. I'd love to talk a lot longer, but um, we do have time limits. And um, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you very much. It's been a fabulous pleasure.
1: And that was Michael Liebright, the founder of Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Um, David, a um, a fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed it. I could have talked to him for another half an hour. I was like his simple explanations of energy matters i was fascinated by his explanation of this concept of base cost renewables and I should add that just after the interview, I actually had a discussion with him about nuclear, and I'm, I'm rather sorry I didn't record that part of it, or it was impossible at that stage, but um, he made the point, given um, that nuclear is you know, a bit of a political conversation in Australia, that um, it might be fine in other countries where there is pre-existing nuclear. He thought that for Australia, it was about the stupidest place to do it, although he did point out that um, he supported the removal of the ban, but he insisted that there should be limits put in place on budgets and expenditure if it was going to be supported, because rather like in a city bidding for the Olympics, it often goes low ball before they discover that they've got to actually build a stadium and do a whole bunch of other things and the costs multiply and multiply and multiply. But he honestly couldn't see why in Australia when you can source wind and solar so cheaply that you would even think about it in the first place. But um, what was your take on the uh, conversation?
2: Well, I I thought uh, a lot of what he said was very interesting and I agree uh, with much of it, although I suspect... uh, um, well, the only thing I disagree with is there's a lot of hydro in Australia. There's not a lot. Uh, and that's, I guess, where local knowledge is is uh, relatively important. But uh, we can do a lot of pumped hydro. But I think the interview uh, speaks for itself. And so I, I don't have any uh, more mm. great comments. Uh, as we all know, uh, the idea of delivering firmed up renewables uh, cons- uh, at, a, at, a, at an attractive price Uh, continues to be what everyone in the industry really wants to achieve, or most
1: people. And even the New South Wales Minister, Energy Minister, um, um, Matthew Keane, came out um, last week and um, said that uh, firm renewables was now clearly the cheapest form of um, new generation, and they have put out a tender for the New South Wales state government consumption, which is about 1.8 terawatt hours, which is no mean thing. Um, I think Renew Economy said it was the biggest load in New South Wales, and you kindly and quite quickly pointed out that it's probably not because the smelter in the Hunter Valley is probably bigger, but... um, Interesting. A couple of interesting things as well with the New South Wales um, initiative. One is this renewable energy zone, which I think you've got something to say about at 3,000 megawatts near Dubbo, and you might be questioning why it's there, and a bit of concern about the um, move to increase the reliability calculation in New South Wales. They want enough backup to deal with two failing coal-fired generators at the same time, which might say something about the... Um, the reliability of coal?
2: Well, I, I think that uh, even the, everyone understands that reliability, uh, the thing with an energy only market from a theoretical perspective, Giles, and I've just been reading this, is it's very hard for consumers to express a reliability preference. Uh, that's the way it's said in Techno Talk. Uh, and so someone else has to do it for you. And at the moment, it's been done either by a EMO. Uh, or, or in this case the New South Wales government has decided it wants a higher standard than what AEMO uh, is allowing and so, so that's where it is. But on the other hand what is interesting about it is the steps that they're going to take uh, if, that, if their reliability standard is not achieved. One of the most interesting ones of which to me is to like make sure that the transmission or new transmission is built, assuming it's generation in other states, such as, for instance, just requiring it to be built and, and uh, telling, say, Transgrid it would be in this case, will it get added into your RAB and we'll give you some money afterwards. Um, that's, uh, you know, I'd like to get Transmission Force built, but it's a bit hard on Transgrid providing the capital uh, to commit to it uh, uh, without uh, knowing the return they're going to get. So there's going to be some issues uh, along there. Um, uh it also feeds in, I think, we've got a lot of news coming up uh, in the next while. So the 3,000 megawatt uh, renewable energy zone, my question is why it's there. Um, uh, only because the only obvious firming that you can put into that renewable energy zone would be, say, gas. If it happened to go around the um, uh, Narrabri gas project and that happened to get approved. But, you know, that's, there's a lot of ifs in that statement. Uh, otherwise, you know, if you want to build transmission to a renewable energy zone, the idea of putting some firming in it, as far as I can understand... Uh, is because it allows higher capacity utilisation of the transmission, so you get better value for the dollar if you follow me. Uh, also, I don't think there's an enormous amount of wind resource in that renewable energy zone as you first look at look at it. So, so there are some of the issues, but it will enable a, a big new uh, transmission loop to be done. So that's, that's, a, that's okay, and that's the security target. And then we had uh, COAG as well uh, meeting. Um, uh, what did you make of COAG?
1: Well, it seemed to me that, um, you know, given what the New South Wales government announced and what the Northern Territory government announced and uh, what South Australia and Victoria are up to, the states are still going alone. Taylor managed to avoid a a revolt, but um, basically only after sort of buying their um, um, acquiescence with a series of bilateral deals and nobody was allowed to mention emissions. And I think if you go back to what Michael Liebruck said um, earlier in this um, podcast, really, that's got to be our focus. And it's the one that um, Australia continues to ignore, even when we start talking about hydrogen and the national hydrogen strategy. And um, I think the two words that struck me when talking about this was, you know, this this thing about um, technology neutral. And I think this must be the last resort of rogues and charlatans, because technology neutral basically is another way of saying we don't care about emissions. Um, and that's that's, that's that... right.
2: Can, that, that's right. You can't have technology neutral and decarbonise. I mean, it, uh, well you can, but you're relying on economics. And uh, I think this is the big point. I don't think the New South Wales government policy is is really going to cope with the closure of the coal power stations. Uh, uh, you know the pace at which that's going to happen. Uh, I can still see a, a significant problem if your lawn closes early, which it still seems to me is is more likely than not, particularly if transmission upgrades. Mm-hmm between Victoria and New South Wales are delayed, uh, which, which I think is uh, uh, quite a possibility. So the thing I'm really, really looking forward to is the release of the 2019 ISP, and we're going to get a draft version of that next week, uh, next month rather, and, and uh, I, I think there'll be a lot to think about that, and uh, also, the um, if you like, the ongoing power struggle between the AEMC and the ESB, and I think the ESB is likely to come out on top in that power struggle in, in the long run, because in the end, uh, John Pierce is going to retire at some point, perhaps around the middle of next year. He's the head of the AEMC. And we saw him get knocked back on the Kogarty side of things at uh, at COAG. Uh, there's uh, there's some acronyms for you. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickle peppers and all of that. COAG <laughs> went to uh, Kogarty um, or went against Kogarty. And, and it's taken that back, and that means it's just going to be a delay in the Kogarty process, uh, uh, particularly as there'll have to be a rapprochement, which doesn't look that obvious, um, uh, but, but between the, the parties on it. And before I just finish this little burst, I want to point out that's another thing that I sort of was very unclear of. My main criticism of the New South Wales strategy is it doesn't really put any money into the industry. It doesn't, you know, it sort of says we're going to create this renewable energy zone, we're going to put $9 million into a dedicated body, which I've I've shortened to dead body, uh, to to act as an interface, sort of, as if we don't have enough uh, dead bodies or regulatory bodies around the place already in the industry. But it's going to ask the renewable generators that want to go there to pay for some of the transmission upgrades, which is just going to increase costs for those generators and make the whole process less likely to happen. Uh, And it doesn't provide any policy for how we're going to get more solar into the system. Uh, when there's, a, you know, it looks like there'll be a surplus of that the way things are going, and solar has to compete with rooftops. So to me, it's a bit of a, uh, you know, nice intentions, but don't add up to a winning strategy just
1: at the moment. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that um, unfolds, and um, it's true. Over the next week and the next couple of weeks, um, we are just four weeks from Christmas, and I do remember last Christmas, and I think we had about fourteen different major reports come out in the two or three days before, um, leading up to Christmas, which is um, when everyone seems to dump these things um, on everybody else. As you say, the ISP is due um, towards the middle and late next month, and let's hope it's towards the middle rather than late. Otherwise, it will get sort of buried in Christmas um, frivolity. Um, we're also waiting for the summer readiness plan next week um, from AIMA, which will be really, really very interesting as well. And um, no doubt a, um, a flurry of other reports and um, and a question about the future of Angus Taylor. Um, breaking news as we're recording this is that there is a police investigation, a form police in- investigation into um, the um, the claims made by Angus Taylor against the city of Sydney Mayor Clover Moore, which were, patently false and for which he's apologized for but I guess the labor has been pushing for this investigation to find out if he has misled the house and how these um these erroneous claims came to pass um interestingly Morrison is standing by Mr Taylor and is refusing to stand him aside pending this investigation so we'll see where that ends up um so and well, that's about it well Charles. Be- I
2: don't I don't we shouldn't talk too long today, you and I, because it's a great interview with Michael, and we've got uh, we've got more stuff coming ourselves. Um, uh, the only thing I'll say very quickly about Scott Morrison is at least he's consistent. He hasn't stood anyone down, no matter what they've done so far, and, and, and he's, he, you know he's very consistent in that pattern.
1: A man you can rely on. Well, there you go. Okay, well, look, thank you, David. Thank you, listeners. And thank you to our sponsors, SolarAy Energy, and EverGen. And I'd just like to point out that EverGen has actually sort of tipped its um tipped itself into the crowdfunding market um to raise seven million dollars for the advancement of their solar and battery and smart energy technology. So we wish all the best to them. Um and we'll be back again next week with another great interview. In fact, we've got a whole bunch lining up now, so we look forward to that. Bye for now.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solar Ray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.